and take your copy of God's Word, turn to Matthew chapter 22, uh, starting, we'll be starting in verse 15. Again, if you're visiting with us, we've been uh, preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, or I have been preaching, not we, we've been listening, I've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew now for quite some time. You providentially are just stepping in into the uh, three quarters of the way through a series that's been rather long running. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, Jesus, in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, (laughs) aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, And to God, the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. They left him and went away. Let's pray again. Lord, we do ask that you would give life and light in our hearts. That we might understand your word and believe for Christ's sake. Amen. I'm not sure if you saw it on the news, end of this week, Walmart and Disney, two of the largest employers in the country, have said you are no longer able to be employed by Walmart or Disney unless you have been vaccinated. You must be vaccinated to work at either of these companies. Now, some of you in here are going, right, your insides are just turning inside out at that reality. Some of you are like, right on, everybody should be vaccinated. Meanwhile, my wife is sitting in panic and going, what are you doing with your introduction? It's already uncomfortable enough. Why have you made it worse? Yeah, I know I picked a really intentionally awkward and inflammatory subject. And and the reality as to why I picked an awkward and inflammatory subject is it's intentionally one that divides the church. It's one that divides this room. 
because there are good and godly people on both sides and both have excellent arguments. And any sort of conversation, if conducted in the wrong tone, could be used as a trap. Just like a conversation about paying your taxes with Jesus. When conducted in the right mechanism, conducted in the right attitude, conducted in the right frame of mind, this conversation could be useful and beneficial and a blessing to the church. Yeah, that's not what's happening here. Oh no, this is not designed to be a helpful conversation. Right? This is that moment in Star Wars, Admiral Akbar. It's a trap, right? That, this is what this section of Scripture is. Jesus has in the prior chapter uh, had a gigantic kind of coronation event. Two different towns have emptied out. Half of Jerusalem have emptied out. And they've led him into Jerusalem, Passover week with all of the pomp and circumstance and celebration that you would give to a king. And what has this king begun acting like inside the town? Well, he immediately goes to the temple the next day and throws out all of the money changers and really upsets all of the powers that be. And it leaves kind of everybody, it leaves the town in a buzz of what is this king going to be like? Well, some hate him for it. And they spring a trap here. He's teaching uh, likely in the temple later in the week. And the Pharisees well, Matthew gives us commentary. This is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke gives us commentary that their intention is to try to trap Jesus. And you can understand why they would want to do that. Jesus has been raised from a a poor family, working class family. His education has been uh, largely self-taught. He doesn't have the pedigree that you would think. There's no little letters after his name. Maybe we can embarrass him. Maybe we can make him look like a fool. I mean, he's this uncouth country bumpkin anyways. Well, wrong. Jesus, the smartest man, well, he is God, but even in his humanity, the smartest man, the most faithful scholar the world has ever seen. And so they try to spring a trap. Now, interestingly, some of this we kind of miss because we're reading this with American ears and don't fully entirely pay attention to everything. But verse 16 starts, and it would kind of give us the idea that there's a problem at hand when both the Pharisees, or their disciples, and the Herodians show up together. This is the moment where the cats and the dogs are playing nicely. Why? What's, what's going on? Right? The, the Herodians and the Pharisees would have been representative groups of two kind of mutually exclusive categories of people, often fighting with each other. The Pharisees represented the religious conservatives, those uh, that were kind of the, the religious status quo, ultra conservative and very powerful. The Herodians represented Jews that had effectively switched sides, and rather than side with the Jews, had sided with the Romans. 
they would have been treated as traitors. So to see them show up together would be much like George Washington and Benedict Arnold showing up holding hands. Whoa, no, something's not right. Now, we miss this again as we tend to not know these things always, but this is a massive problem. It's why Jesus gives them such an unpleasant response for their seemingly saccharine sort of question. Verse 16, I tried to read it as obnoxious as it actually is, obnoxiously, I guess. Teacher, we know that you're true. They don't believe that. We know that you teach the way of God truthfully. They don't don't believe that. In Matthew, they've been trying to murder him for nine chapters at this point. And we know that you do not care about anyone's opinion. Now, they actually probably do believe that. Tell us then, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, that actually is a very good question. That actually is the kind of question a true believer should be asking. Is it right for me to act like this? Is it holy for me to act like that? Those are great questions for Christians to be asking. This one is uh, kind of even perhaps a bit more loaded than even we might see because of the nature of this tax. The tax that they're specifically referring to is a tax that was uh, a Roman tax and had become kind of uh, representative in their culture of Roman authority. It had become an a representation of how the Romans suppressed the Jews. And I will give you an illustration of what that looked like. Every time the region of Judea misbehaved, Rome simply increased the tax as a punitive measure to make them behave. Oh, you want to cause trouble? That's fine. You just have to pay more taxes. Oh, you want to cause more trouble? That's fine. We'll just make you pay more taxes. Right? It actually sounds very familiar from the Old Testament, doesn't it, with the way that Pharaoh treated the slaves in Egypt. Right? Oh, you have to build bricks. Oh, you're misbehaving? That's fine. We'll take away the straw. Oh, yeah, by the way, you don't get your you know, load of bricks diminished at all. You still have to produce We have it written actually in Jewish, like not even Christian writing, but in Jewish writing, how much they resented this tax. It was a symbol of oppression. It was a symbol of an evil government to them. Further, more interestingly, I think here is that it was required to be kind of paid in this coin, and uh, that's why Jesus asks for a very specific one. Right, am, I, am I supposed to pay this tax? It is a godly thing for me to do. Well, in verse 19, show me the coin for the tax. Bring me the exact coin that you need to pay it. Now, whether Jesus is too poor to have one, maybe, I don't know. Maybe he, he wants to use their coin so that their own item is a defeater to them. I, I'm not sure. But they, you know, rummage around and, okay, oh, I got it. Somebody has the coin, flip it over to, you know, Jesus or the guy right in front of him. Jesus asks the question in verse 20, whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose face is on the coin? 
Now again, sweet mercies of the Lord, we actually have these exact printing of coins. We know exactly which type of coin this was. Tiberius was emperor of Rome, and this coin on two sides, one side had a picture of Tiberius Caesar Augustus with the statement printed on it, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side, it had a picture of him uh, kind of arrayed like a god with the phrase highest priest printed on it. Now, if you know your Roman history, Augustus, the good one, the first kind of Roman emperor, yay, we like him, is replaced by Tiberius. Tiberius is the first uh, that is borderline insane. Uh, In fact, actually, we think he was likely actually assassinated by his, the one following him. Uh, The reason that makes Tiberius a little bit insane, just a little bit compared to those that follow him, was that he actually behaved like he was a god, demanded that he be treated as a god, and was the one who really pioneered emperor worship in Rome. That's why this test is such a loaded test for Jesus. It's not just that they're asking him, should Christians pay taxes? They're asking him, should Christians support a government run by a man who says that he's God and is using this tax to punish his people? That's why it's a loaded question. They're not asking, should we pay taxes? They're asking, what do we do with a politician like this? They're asking, what do we do with a tax like this? Because this is why it's so significant, both groups of people are there, is they're trying to get Jesus, to force Jesus to take a side. They want him to say, no, you have to support Rome. That's why the Herodians are there. If he says you have to support Rome, guess what? He loses all of the Jews' support. Or they want him to say, no, you have to support the Jews. Because if that happens, well, then he's treated like a Roman or Jewish zealot by the Romans and they can come in and have him killed. Which side are you going to support? And either side, either position that he takes, he, he's forced to lose a substantial, excuse me, part of the room uh, and uh, potentially his life. I suspect the way this is even framed is they're expecting him to side with the Jews against Rome. That's what they're expecting, I think. Now, Jesus, interestingly, doesn't side with either party, as you might guess. Instead, takes a response that is almost shocking And pointing them to the coin, whose face is on the coin, and then makes this statement in 21, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. Now, he he actually changes the language here so that it's the language of a little bit of indebtedness. 
This coin belongs to Caesar. It's part of his empire. It's part of his rule and his reign. Your task is to return that which is his. You can see now why I knew this sermon would make us all so very uncomfortable. Because all of the money that I have printed has the faces of my rulers printed on it. And in doing so, Jesus is telling me to return to Washington. What is Washington's? What do we do with a passage like this? Well, I think Jesus is actually framing out a principle for us that I think is, Lord willing, going to be rather useful for us, but is probably going to offend our sensibilities and honestly might make some of you a little bit angry, and that's okay. The principle is this. One of the key pieces of Christian living is that Christians are called to submission to others, including the government, as part of their obedience to God. As as part of the Christian life, as, as part of what it means to be a Christian, we are called to submission to others, including the government, as a part of our obedience to God. You see, that's the interesting thing here is that in Jesus' answer, he's actually grammatically not setting up an antithesis. He's not setting up two specific ends of the spectrum to say you either support Caesar or you either support God. That's not the grammar of what he's saying. In fact, actually, the probably kind of more faithful intellectual representation would be, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's as part of rendering to God the things that are God's. It's part of Christian obedience to be obedient to the state. In fact, actually, it's part of Christian obedience to be submissive. In fact, I would even go so far as to say it is one of the defining attributes of humanity if you are called to be a Christian, that we are to be people of submission. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, one, Ten Commandments. If we were to go back and look at kind of the the nature of the moral law, how God frames out how his people are to behave, you have the moral law divided into two tablets. You have the first four commandments that are given specifically in relationship to how we interact with God, and then you have the second, the final six, with how uh, we relate to mankind. Interestingly, the fifth one is that turning point, right? It's the link between the two. If you were to pay attention, you remember what that one is? Honor your father and mother. Why? Because the very essence of understanding what Christianity is, is it's understanding submission to God in the first four commandments and understanding submission to man in the next. It's why when uh, in the New Testament, when all of the epistles are written to the various churches and written to the various pastors, 
It's a reoccurring theme all throughout the church that what does it mean to be Christian? How do we interact with each other? We are called to be people of submission. That's why you get passages like 1 Corinthians 14 that makes us all very uncomfortable, makes preachers sweat having to preach. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. It's the definition of Christian worship, that women are to be in submission. I'll give you a hint, that's, it's not just for women only. <laughs> Second Corinthians 9, as Paul's interacting with the church in relationship to their giving and, and generosity with other churches, he explicitly notes that their obedience is a mark of submission as a church to their pastors. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Much less if you go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians is one of the easiest books to remember the structure of the book. Chapters 1 and 2 are the gospel. Chapters 3 and 4, kind of consequences of the gospel for the big picture church, unity. Chapters 5 and 6 are practical applications of the gospel. And interestingly, when you get to chapter 5, it's just an exposition of submission. Husbands, men, are to be submissive to Christ. Wives, submissive to Christ and their husbands. Children, submissive to their parents. We even have that awkward Titus 2 passage or in 1 Peter 2 where it even goes so far as to say that slaves are called to be submissive as an act of submission to God. Philippians chapter 2 probably explains this, I think, the most succinctly. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The posture of Christianity is a posture of submission. Now, automatically, this it kind of chafes at our postmodern sensibilities. It chafes at our American sensibilities. It chafes against our South Carolinian sensibilities. I mean, you go down to Charleston and read some of the most amazing history of what a lack of submission looks like. Some of it victorious, some of it not. 
two very different wars, pushed through this great state. You see, the thing is, is that we as one sinners don't like the posture of submission because the posture of submission means that we're not in charge, we're not in control. That's what submission is. It's handing someone else the keys to the car. Some of you have that friend that cannot be a passenger in a vehicle. One of my dear friends, I have never ever seen him ride as a passenger anywhere. Been my friend for 30 years. Not once have I seen him be a passenger. Has to drive. He can't can't give up the control of the wheel to others. Some of you, I just called you out, sorry. Didn't know you were that person. We don't like to let others be in charge. We like to be in charge. Now, some of us work that out through that kind of type A, alpha style of leadership where we're aggressive and we go get it and we're go-getters and we make our desires happen. Some of us, more type B, more passive aggressive, uh, just kind of fuss about us wanting it the way that it happens, but we don't go get it and we just kind of general fuss buggery along the way. But it's still our want to be in charge. Christians are called to submission to others as a part of their obedience to God, even including the government. Now, there's usually kind of two objections that pop up here, right? In the government, the easy one is to say, well, what about government overreach? What if the government's not minding their own business? What about a government that's, that's constantly expanding? What about a government that's infringing upon my rights? I love that. That is the most first world problem I've ever heard in my entire life. The only people that are concerned about your rights being taken through government overreach are the people that have lived in the greatest country in human history. We're the only people who think to ask that. Because every other country in human history has already done that. Why? Because governments always overreach. It's in the nature of what a government is. It's like saying, you know, if my kids came home, we're like, hey, we want a pet skunk that doesn't stink. That's called a cat, right? It's not a skunk, it's a cat. I want a government that doesn't overreach. That ain't a government anymore. It's the nature of what government is. And it's interesting, Jesus himself answers that overreach question. He did it in this book already. Chapter 5, his first recorded sermon, he gives two specific examples of this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, right there where uh, you have that great illustration of where he says, if, if someone tells you to walk a mile with them, you walk two. If someone asks for your cloak, you, you give them double, you give them more. And we hear that and think, oh, it's about generosity. Wrong. 
Actually, Roman law at this point in history was that if a Roman soldier showed up and they didn't feel like carrying their luggage for the day, they could say, you're on for a mile, I'll see you later, and you had to carry their luggage and you didn't get the privilege to say no. Can you imagine that, right? You're going to the marketplace, you're in the middle of the family grocery run, you've got about 1,700 other things to do that afternoon, you know you're going to be up till really late trying to get your things done, and the, the local soldier walks by this big burly dude, and it's like, you know, I'm a little hot today. I think you're going to carry my stuff. And interestingly, does Jesus say resist? No, the law was, they legally, according to Roman law, they were legally allowed to have you carry it for one mile. Jesus says, carry it for two. They were allowed to actually come and take part of your clothing, come into your clothing. Jesus says, give them more. Interestingly, Jesus, in, in interacting with a government that is overreaching to seize the possessions and to seize the time of their constituents, Jesus says, it's fine. Submission anyways. That makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? <clears throat> I think the most difficult is actually in First Peter chapter 2. In First Peter chapter 2, we have the command... Verse 18, servants, that's the slave's word again. Your English translations don't put slave there because they don't want us to get caught up thinking in American racist slavery. Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures while suffering unjustly. And I I suspect I don't need to belabor this point, but I think it's fair that we would most likely understand, like, Roman slavery, though better than American slavery, which is horrible, Roman slavery was awful, right? Roman slavery was absolutely awful. Not as bad as here, but awful. Often slaves were purchased for the purposes of prostitution or pederasty specifically, Right? Horrible, horrible, horrible things. One of the very common things they used for slaves that misbehave was to send them to the mines because Roman mines were a death sentence. They never figured out how to mine well. They could build everything. They couldn't mine. And so if you went in there, you knew you died. Right, the, the, the objection, well, it's government overreach. The government isn't allowed to actually impact my freedom in a way that impacts my body or even impacts my life. And interestingly, what's that First Peter passage saying? Slaves, submit to your masters even when they treat you unjustly and they're terrible humans. Even where they're the scum of the earth. And again, that was because Roman law allowed it. That was what the Roman government had built in as law. To say that government overreach is not an issue for obedience or for submission puts you in the situation where you have to defend slavery. Paul addresses it 
in Ephesians. Peter addresses it in 1 Peter. It's addressed in that Titus passage. We're called to be obedient. There's a second objection that, to submission that is often kind of thrown out. Well, I don't have to be submissive if they're not good people. Right? I don't have to submit to a government that's not good. Wives, I don't have to submit to a husband that's not good. Children, I don't have to submit to a parent that's not good. Workers, I don't have to submit to a boss that's not good. I don't have to submit if they're not good, and I'm going to let you in on a little secret. They're never good! Again, a skunk that doesn't stink. A government that isn't evil in some fashion. Right? Government's a mess. Hate government. The only thing worse than government is no government. They're never good. They're never perfect. We live in a world that is cursed by God and is filled with the consequences of evil. There is only one kingdom that is unstained by evil, and it is Christ's kingdom. We can pause and just for a moment think about, again, the the emperors in the time in which this is being written, the time in which the New Testament is written. Just a little bit of Roman history. This is fun for you. Tiberius, the one here where Jesus is speaking, thought he was a god, tried to codify that the emperor of Rome was actually a deity, either dies of questionable circumstances or of assassination by the next guy, a guy named Caligula. I actually can't tell you about him because I have minors in the room. I shouldn't, don't watch any documentaries on them. They're most likely just going to be a porno. He was an absolute evil man. Full-blown insane, in fact, so bad that his bodyguards, his own bodyguards, assassinated him after he appointed his horse to the Senate. Evil man. He's followed by Claudius, long-running, reigning man, who is a notoriously weak man. He was a uh, bureaucrat of the worst kind, and as a result, he couldn't maintain power. So he just had paid assassins on his role all the time. And any time a senator got very good at their job, they fell down a flight of stairs onto a knife. Every time. His hit list is notorious and large. A villainous man who is then followed by Nero. Nero is who Paul is uh, under when he's writing Romans 13. Submit to the governing authorities. There is no authority except that which God has established. Nero was famous for his garden parties. Now, this is later in his life, not at the beginning, but for taking Christians, tying them to a stake, covering them in oil, and burning them alive to light his dinner parties. He was famous for how there were parts of Rome where, as you could go into the city at night, the streets were lit on either side through the burning bodies of Christians. They were not dead when they were lit. All four of these men were famous for their gladiatorial games more than 50% of whom were slaves forced to murder against their will or die. 
Nero commits suicide after he loses the, the, pop, the popularity of the people. There's a series of real quick ones. They all either get killed or kill themselves. Until Vespasian shows up. Vespasian is uh, famous. He kind of comes between most of the New Testament and uh, kind of very in the last books written because Vespasian is the one who is emperor when the area of Judea becomes to be very difficult. And rather than deal with it, he takes an up-and-coming general named Titus and says, go wipe them out. So Titus goes to Jerusalem and burns it to the ground. The destruction of the temple, 70 AD, is through Titus who, by the way, would be the next emperor after Vespasian. Every one of the rulers in the time in which the New Testament is written, every one of them was massively evil. Like, shockingly so. I mean, don't get me wrong, not saying our politicians are, you know, squeaky clean, but even we would be shocked and scandalized at how bad these people were. And it's intriguing that that's actually, yeah, they're not good at all. And yet Jesus says to be submissive to them. Paul says to be submissive to them. Peter says to be submissive to them. It's the defining posture towards the government. But what if they're not good I love this. Children, what what if your parents aren't good? Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52, Jesus went down with them. His parents came to Nazareth, Nazareth and was submissive to them. How many times do you think Jesus got disciplined by his mother? Every one of them was wrong. <laughs> he never did anything wrong. Every time his mother scolded him, she was wrong, not him. Every time his father provided some sort of kind of corporal punishment to encourage him, his father was wrong because Jesus never sinned. Think about how many times they went to teach him things and he in his head was like, nope, that's not right. They weren't good like he was, yet he was submissive to them. This is the posture of the Christian, is one of Submission. So what do we earth we do with this? If we're called to be those that are submissive, what, what do we do with this? And I think actually what is most useful is to think to the bigger principle that this points to. Really, if you think about it, what is a lack of submission uh, an illustration of? When we are unsubmissive, what we are doing is trying to be in charge of our own life and to be our own defender, right? To defend our rights, to defend our bodies, to defend our emotions, to defend our jobs, to defend our reputations, to defend our children, to defend our spouse, to defend everything that we know. And the interesting kind of challenge is that God is saying, you do a stinky job at that. Let me be your defender instead. 
Let me be your defender instead. Let me be the one who worries about your reputation. Let me be the one who worries about your children. Let me be the one who worries about your job. Let me be the one who worries about your food. Let God be the one who is God and let you be the one who trusts in him. Oh, you need proof, right? That's what the cross is, friends. Proof that you don't have to be afraid that God has sent his son. He will be your defender and he will care for you. I will say... This last year and a half in this great nation of ours has challenged us all, I think, a lot to think about these things. Or it should have, at least. Maybe we haven't thought about them. We should have. What does my relationship with the government look like? What does my relationship with my peers look like? What does my relationship with my spouse look like? What does my relationship with my children look like? And I'll tell you just briefly as a pastor... There has, nothing, there has been nothing I have watched more dominate our thinking than fear. The fear of losing our reputation, the fear of losing our wealth, the fear of pain, the fear of rejection, the fear of isolation, the fear of death, the fear of a disease, the fear of the vaccine, the fear of the solution, the fear of all of it, the fear of everything. It's been an overwhelming, dominating thing in this American world. If you find yourself in a situation where even this conversation about submission upsets the balance of your heart, I would encourage you just to take a few moments to kind of really consider the question, what am I afraid of? Am I afraid that God won't do it the way that I want? Am I afraid that he's not going to show up and take care of me? Am I afraid that I might hurt a little bit in the meantime? What am I so afraid of? That I can't trust the Lord who made heaven and earth, the one who watches over me while I slumber and sleep, the one who will watch over me by sun by day and moon by night, the one who has pledged himself to me over and over and over and over again in the scriptures, the one who even sent his son to die on the cross on my behalf, and the one who has freely given me salvation and all things, am I willing to trust that? Brothers and sisters, honor the Lord, keep his commands, submit to each other and even the government, be righteous in everything, and find freedom in Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's so rich that it could take another hour and still not get to the end of this. 
Thank you that you're faithful to us and you protect us even when we don't deserve it, which is always. Bless us for Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.